Today is May 22nd, 2016, and you're listening to Episode 6, Change Management on InfoTrek. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Uh, This is John Kearns, and I'm back with Derek and Mike. And uh, we're going to go back around the table and reintroduce ourselves. We haven't done that in a while. And uh, Derek, why don't you go ahead and get started with that? Sure. My name is uh, Derek Pokoroba, currently the Director of Enterprise Networks for Avar in SoCal. Um, Network engineer, network architect, kind of done it all over the years. Mike, how about you? Hey, everybody. I'm Mike Aussie. Uh, I am an engineering manager by day and uh, formerly a software developer and collaboration engineer um, for a long, long time. So I still play a little bit in the technology, even though management's my thing day to day. And I'm John Kearns. I am a uh, I'm a systems engineer at the same company. I work with these guys all the time. I am in the post sales world, while they're more in the management and uh, more in the pre sales world than I am. So let's jump in the news for today. Amazon back in the news, releasing a uh, a new service called Application Discovery Service, and it looks like it's uh, been set up to help help customers move their workloads into the cloud faster by doing some analysis on applications that they're running and links and dependencies of those applications so that you can make sure you don't move some piece of your system up into the cloud without moving its counterparts that are running on other units. Uh, Mike, what do you think? Do you think this is going to help Amazon get uh, more work- more workloads up in their cloud from uh, from on-prem stuff? I definitely do. You know, it's interesting that they're releasing this right now. I think for a lot of organizations that kind of work with um, you know, data center changes or moves um, like we do, we hear this as being one of the biggest challenges for customers, really understanding where their workload should live and what it's going to take to transition um, a given workload. Because a lot of times, especially in this legacy space that Amazon's kind of targeting at this point, um, there's a lot of just unknowns, right? Either a vendor that they've been using for years put this in and has done so many different things to it to make it work and integrate with other systems, which is one of the things that uh, the article on Info, uh, Information Week highlights. So all these interdependencies that go on. Um, and it's actually something, you know, that's very, uh, you know, sort of hot button for anybody who's in consulting right now is really being able to to offer some value beyond just the infrastructure and saying, yes, we can put your workload here as long as you tell us what your workload needs. It's really about understanding what that workload requires so that we can build out the infrastructure and other things, um, whether that's going you know, in their data center or into a public cloud uh, for consumption after the workload moves. Yeah, I remember a few episodes ago, we were reviewing uh, some companies that were writing software to help you you know, seamlessly move workloads up into the cloud by, you know, sort of doing like a layer two bridge and, and being able to move whole VMs up there at a time. And it's kind of a, 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 a quicker, but really dirtier way to do it than actually moving your raw applications up there. But um, I think this will definitely help people do it the right way. Derek, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's really critical that, you know, these larger cloud players, like I know Microsoft has their own kind of version of this that works similarly where, you know, agent-based, it kind of discovers the apps, it understands what it's doing, because I can't tell you how many times or customers I've been in where I ask them, you know, what, what their applications do, and they give you this look of, like, like you're crazy, like, you know, they have no clue, and then, you know, us as, like, network guys, you're busting out the packet captures or, like, NetFlow data to try to help them understand it, and, you know, this is going to be very key from a consulting perspective, like Mike hinted to earlier, 
Um, so I think that between Google and Amazon and Microsoft, whoever can make it the easiest to move the workloads is going to win, right? So they're definitely targeting to kind of make it easier for customers to understand their apps to move them. Because like, like I said, almost no company does for the most part. You know, it's, it's interesting too. Like if you take a look at how virtualization really started to take off and what VMware strategy was for getting things off of bare metal, um, it was to come in and run an analyzer for a few weeks, right? The same approach. I install this agent on my servers and there's a collector and it gives me all this data about what the application is doing, who it's talking to. And then I can make some decision about whether I can virtualize the application um, effectively in VMware. And without that analyzer tool, many of these workloads would probably still be on bare metal servers in, uh, you know, in somebody's data center today. So it's not surprising that everybody's kind of taking the same approach. It's surprising to me that it took this long to get to that point, though, for somebody as big as Amazon. Yeah, I think it'll definitely make it easier for anybody looking to go to the cloud. Next up in the news is uh, an update from LinkedIn on the, the hack that happened four years ago where uh, they thought, I think it was just maybe um, a few million of their users were compromised and uh, and had their account information hacked. And now it looks like it was over 100 million, uh, upwards of 117 million, according to LinkedIn. And uh, it looks like they got email addresses and in the clear passwords because LinkedIn is warning all of its users to make sure they're not using the same password in multiple locations. And this is... For a lot of people in the infrastructure world, especially in like InfoSec, you know, this is second nature. This is just something that you obviously do. You don't use the same password in two locations as, you know, as much as you can. But um, it, it definitely looks like it's worse than we previously thought. Derek, what do you think? I know, I think Mike, both Derek, uh, you and Derek both have LinkedIn accounts. I do as well. What do you think, Derek? Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, right? I mean, these things always happen. Um you know, it's always this concern of using the same passwords, uh, try to keep them different. You know, there's tools like LastPass and things like that to help kind of keep things separate. Uh, I can't remember where I read it, actually, but recently I read that, you know, some people in the InfoSec world are actually saying that when you use multiple passwords, um, you actually end up using, like, more simplified passwords. So some people actually say use the same password but make it very strong and just change it often. So a little bit different play, but... Yeah, I think for most people, just kind of having a separate you know, password pool or you know, kind of list to use um, is always best practice. Yeah, I remember. I remember hearing about that. That sort of. Ch- I think that was like a an official like NIST recommendation where it was you know have users change their passwords all the time, and then they they revised it recently to uh, um, you know don't have them change their passwords, just set high complexity you know requirements and. You know, for for end users having multiple accounts all over the place, I think the best the best thing to do is really like LastPass, some kind of password manager where it manages what passwords you use in each individual location. You just have to remember your master password to get back into your manager. Mike, what do you think? Are you afraid your LinkedIn account's gonna start spamming everybody? Yeah, I mean, I remember when the hack happened. I mean, I guess for me, kind of looking at back at the the LinkedIn thing and saying like, Hey, why did it take them this long to figure out that the hack was much more expansive than it was? Um, kind of yeah, stinks four years. That, that it took four years for them to release the information. Cause I can't believe that they just turned over that rock right now, four years later. Right. So uh, shame yeah. on LinkedIn for keeping the information from us. But I guess, you know, when it happened, um, you know, just like anything that we adopt when it's new, Developers take shortcuts. Passwords are, 
in plain text and databases, we don't really know. And that's one of the scary things about the cloud is it's only as secure as somebody who wrote the software. Um, so we yeah. take our chances, right? And I mean, I, I definitely agree with you guys that, uh, you know, using a password management tool like LastPass um, is the right thing to do. Uh, but, you know, as far as the information they got from LinkedIn, um, I don't think like in my case that I'm over, overly vulnerable because most of the things that I really care about, I really make sure that they support two-factor authentication anyway. So even if they had my password, they're still not getting in, right? It's it's one of my selection criteria for most of the cloud services that I use. So if you haven't changed your LinkedIn password since 2012, you definitely want to go do that immediately. Next up on, on the news list here, uh, Gardner who we all know and love came out recently and said that uh, server virtualization, as we all commonly know it, is no longer a growing business. They called it mature, meaning that it's essentially it's essentially a dying business. It's over the hill. For the first time ever, VMware licensing has been reported down last quarter, down 1%. It looks like we're into a new age of virtualization, possibly containerization. What, Derek, what do you think? Yeah, it's always interesting with Gardner, right? It's like, you know, mature, dying, how do you want to look at it? You know, is it shrinking? Yeah, maybe. Is it going to stay flat for a while? Probably, right? Because, you know, are people building out massive on-prem data centers? Not as much as they used to. It's more of a, a hybrid model, looking at cloud adoption, things like that. So, you know, I can see where the cost of maintenance and licensing is kind of playing a factor. But I would say for most of our customers now, they're pretty much heavily virtualized or as virtualized as they're going to get. Um, so I can see containerization kind of being the next step, but in my opinion, it's going to take a while to get there until that's really hashed out. So, you know, it'll probably remain flat for a while and and drop a little bit, but you know, it's not going to go away tomorrow. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's saturation, right? Uh, we've been hearing recently that the market is saturated with, at least for VMware, you know, everybody who is going to get VMware pretty much already has it, and nobody's really in the process of virtualizing physical servers anymore. So nobody's really growing their their virtualization systems unless their actual, you know, their company itself is growing. But Mike, what do you think? What do you think of the uh, of uh, of the news Gardner, Gardner released down? And do you think that we're in a new age of virtualization here? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things are interesting about Gardner's article, right? Um, one is that if you kind of read between the lines and um, if you look at the InfoWeek article about the Gardner publishment or publication, uh, publishment, wow, that's, that's a neat word I just invented. Uh, yeah, we'll put that one down. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the uh, the Info Information Week article about the Gardner publication, uh, it highlights a couple of things, right? One is that um, VMware sales are really moving more to maintenance focused right now. Right. And as someone said, I don't know if it was John, if it was you or Derek, um, everybody who's going to buy VMware kind of already has VMware, right? Nobody's really sort of making the plunge for the first time. Um, but the other th- interesting thing is that, uh, they're really the only indicator for the market in a com- from a commercial standpoint, right? Is that Microsoft doesn't segment its virtualization sales because really those are features of the addition of Microsoft server that you buy, uh, getting that Hyper-V product set or feature set. So there's not really another player who is in that that sort of upper uh, right quadrant of, um, you know, of Gardner's studies to say like, this is really trending. Uh, the market's trending the way that VMware is trending because VMware is the only one who's really be able to provide data around growth. 
Um, so having said that, I think, you know, it's what's next. And the container thing is really the thing that makes sense because when we look at what we were trying to accomplish with server virtualization to begin with, it was really trying to get the most out of the hardware that we that was underutilized, right? That was the big, really big value proposition is you can save all this money on server infrastructure and power and cooling and all these other things because your servers are running at 5% capacity right now. And if we put a whole bunch more stuff on that one server, then you'll get more out of it. Well, now we take away the hypervisor and we run containers on top of, uh, you know, bare metal OS and we abstract the process the same way that we did by extracting the service. When our applications get ready to be containerized, it's just the next step in, you know, that hardware utilization paradigm that we originally sold the virtualization concept with to begin with. Yeah, so that gets that gets into something interesting, Mike. What? So I think a lot of people understand what virtualization is because it was really just a, a simple abstraction of, you know, bare metal servers that we were running before. You take the OS that used to run on your actual server, you you sort of have software underneath that fakes the hardware and presents it to the operating system, and you install the whole operating system on it. You know, along with the application. So what's the difference between virtualization and containerization? If you can. If you can uh, explain that. Sure. So I guess the best way that I can explain it or the way I understand it in my mind is it sort of works like deduplication and storage. So we take uh, an operating system and we utilize the parts that would be replicated in each one of the um, virtualized servers uh, at the operating system level. And then the things that are unique about that server instance, potentially, if we're talking about a virtual machine, um, or the things that the application needs specifically to run are run within a container. And the container functions much like a thread from the standpoint of a worker process on a, on a server. Um, you know, I can start up multiple threads, I can start up multiple containers, and they just run as sort of segmented processes on, on the processor itself. But what's different is that they don't have any um, visibility to the other containers that are running, right? They're really segmented from the standpoint of security and network. Um, and all those other things, but they don't reinstantiate all of the things inside of the operating system, like the networking stack and, you know, the, the CPU monitor and all those other things that really lie within the, the baseline OS, or, you know, if we're talking about a traditional server virtualization environment, the, potentially the hypervisor, right? So we, we sort of make use of that common framework there. And then we just containerize or, you know, basically start threads for the things that are unique about our applications, thereby leveraging more capacity on the on the server itself that's running all of that. Yeah, so it sounds like in the same way that with with regular server virtualization in the classic sense, we we allowed operating systems to share the same hardware. In this in this case, we're allowing multiple applications to share the same operating system while being, I guess, sandboxed from each other. Is that a good way to, to restate that? It, it is. And, and, you know, we really we really leverage more of a, a common um, sort of underlying platform to run the, these containers. And the other cool thing about containers is that they're, they don't have to be uniquely built, right? So the container works much like an app, a cloud native application where I basically point to a container image and then I start up a container and that container has nothing unique about it other than the things that were in the image. So I can tear it down and restart it with the same set of instructions a hundred times and I get the same result um, versus, you know, a virtual machine that's really a unique file and I make changes to that file 
And when I shut it down, the changes that I made before I shut it down are going to come back, right? The container spawns yeah. the same way every single time it starts up, regardless of what I did to it during its lifetime on another machine previously. So it really allows us to get a predictable result and be able to use configuration management software like Ansible and Puppet and Chef to manage these containers and move them around and do other things with them like we do cloud native applications when we pull them from Git and start them up in things like Amazon's you know, Elastic Beanstalk or Azure's App Service. Very cool. So it sounds like we are now in the age of containers. I think, I, I think we covered last week uh, VMware working with Pivotal to uh, try and put something out there you know, put together and release a product that's a container platform rather than a certain, you know, classic server virtualization platform. It sounds like it's, if containers really are going to be the next big thing, then it's, uh, it's definitely in their interest to do so. I agree. All right. So that wraps it up for the news. Let's hop into our topic. The topic this week is change management. I know that we all love change management very much. You know, us network engineers, we don't really like making changes to the network gear as much as we like filling out the change control stuff or change prevention, as I usually call it. Um, Change prevention systems are always a lot of fun to work in day to day. Um, Derek, why don't you start us off here and explain what is change management? Uh, change management is a thing that CYAs when something goes wrong during a 2 a.m. maintenance window and someone asks, what did you do? And you're like, I did this, right? Um, like, like, kind of like you said, right, us engineers aren't really fond of filling out you know, paperwork, TPS reports, things like that. We just want to get in and start hacking away at the CLI or the, the scripting or whatever and kind of hope it works. But you know, any experienced engineer is going to understand the benefit of the change management and, and what it can do. Um, you know, ultimately I would say that if there is ever any problems with, you know, code you deploy or settings you deploy, the first question I always ask somebody is what was the last thing you change? And if you can't tell me that, then that's kind of a scary thought. So, you know, if you think about it, if it was your network, you know, would you want someone in there making changes without you knowing? Probably not. So it's really in its simplest form, a way for you to track changes, understand what impact you had, whether it's tomorrow or even a week later and what the potential rollbacks would be um, of those changes if they were negative. Yeah, so I've usually seen change management implemented as some kind of software interface where you know, you're really just documenting all the details of the change you're, that you're planning to make to you know, some kind of infrastructure, whether it be you know, some systems, you know, changing some VMware settings, a lot of times changing network settings. If you're doing this in some kind of CLI, you know, sort of scripting it out in that change management, laying it out that way. And that way, and then publishing it where your your technical peers can review it, right? And uh, and managers who don't understand anything about what you're doing typically, uh, you know, they'll get in and approve it as well. And, and they'll usually require you to explain if it's going to cause any any expected downtime or if there's a risk of some kind of downtime or something like that. Um, but, you know, there's also change management in the, in the software world. And um, Mike, uh, how... Uh, why don't you get into that? What you know? What do you typically see infrastructure change management versus software change management used? Yeah, so I, I guess you know the the concept is one and the same. I mean, regardless of what we're changing, whether it's infrastructure or it's software, I think it you know there's a couple of goals, right? So it's it's one is you have to think through what you're going to do before you do it. Um, make sure that it doesn't break anything. So you got to prove how it, how it is that, you know, your change is not going to adversely affect whatever's in production right now. And then 
the, the last aspect, um, I, I like an analogy that someone, a customer gave me a long time ago when I used to work in the southern part of the country. They said, it makes the cowboys keep their guns in the holsters until the shootout. Right. So, so what that means is that if you just like to change things on the fly, uh, there's the very, very definitive documentation that you weren't supposed to do that if you did it um, before the time you were allowed to. Right. So I think, I think that's the other thing that it kind of is a, is a checks and balances and kind of keeps everybody honest that, Hey, did you have this documentation? And you know, if you shoot too early that you're going to get in trouble for it. Um, but essentially the same thing, right? If you're fixing a bug, you got to test your, your patch or your, you know, your code fix before you put it in, in the software world. And, you know, it's got to have specific goals. It's got to have unit tests. It's got to have all the things that we probably want from an infrastructure change as well as like, Hey, did you test this in the lab? What was the result after you tested it? Did you do regression testing for these other features that are key, um, to, you know, the network functioning and, you know, are you able to roll it back if you need to? Um, and somebody else gets a second set of eyes on it, which is the other thing I think is important in the change management world is like, it's not just one person reviewing a change. So sometimes the best of us are busy and we don't always think things through a hundred percent because we're just focused on accomplishing one task. And, you know, there may be an ancillary byproduct that uh, we produce as a result of whatever we're trying to do and having somebody else review that as part of the change management process um, from an approval standpoint oftentimes gets us that second set of eyes before we have a problem which is i think pretty beneficial regardless of how you look at it yeah peer review is is you know is definitely something that uh that is beneficial in the infrastructure world i know plenty of times that uh you know, I would put together some kind of major change that was going to, you know, poss- that could possibly cause an outage, but shouldn't. And, and I've had peers review it and catch things like, oh, hey, you know, if you if you don't, uh, you know, move that character over here, you're going to you're going to break this and that. And it's, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, good thing you caught that. But um, so, Mike, you kind of got into this question a little bit. But um, when is it when is it necessary to use change management? And maybe when is it you know, when is it appropriate to use it and when is it not appropriate? You know, what are sort of, give me some scenarios of when it's not really an appropriate thing to, uh, to have and be using regularly. So I'd say that, you know, in most cases, if you're making a change that can do something to your production equipment, um, that you don't expect, you should use change management. So the answer is probably always, but reality is that there's times that things are need to move faster than your change management process will. Um, so an example of this is you may have, uh, you know, an operational process that says, Hey, I'm allowed to change the switch ports or the VLANs on these switch ports in an access layer switch stack. Right. Um, that's not something I want to rate around for. We turn a port up or down, or we change the VLAN that it's in as part of our daily process of provisioning users and, and onboarding people so that their computer at their desk is able to connect to the network. Um, that may be acceptable for you to do that during the day without a change management, um, approval, but things like I'm going to insert a new static route into my routing table on six routers is probably something that I need to be cautious about, or I'm going to change the area number on this, you know, this, (laughs) this router, um, and move it to area zero. It's probably not a good idea to do that without having somebody review what's going to happen, uh, when you do that and does it work correctly in the lab? Um, those types of things. So I guess the answer is it depends. 
my standard engineering answer. It, it really comes down to your operational process at your organization and what's acceptable and what's not, right? It's, it's about risk mitigation. And if you're willing to tolerate the risk for some things because they need to move quicker than the, the change management process works, um, you should just be clear about what those things are, have them documented, and you know you don't have to go through the process for that. Derek, what about you? Um, you know, you've—I know you spend a lot of time in the post-sales world, uh, making changes regularly, and uh, and and probably having to document them in some cases and, and not others. What do you think? You know, what do you have to add to uh, to what Mike said about when it's appropriate to use it and when it's not? Yeah, as much as I hate to say it, you know, the answer is pretty much always right. So I think to add to Mike's point, typically what we see is, you know, at a larger network, you can kind of say, all right. We maybe break down the network into like three or four zones. You know, we can say, let's just call it campus versus data center. That's one for easy to understand. And we can say, hey, you know, the campus campus side, you can kind of make changes, what, what they'll call, you know, up to say, you know, like a tier one, tier two type ticket, you know, changing VLANs, things like that, no problem. But then you have a totally different set of rules for data center, firewall changes, software upgrades, where maybe they require, you know, more due diligence, more peer review, um, regular maintenance windows, say the third Saturday of every month from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Um, then you kind of get into issues too where uh, you kind of have multiple teams making changes at once, so it also can cause a tone, uh, can of worms to happen, right? Where you know team one might make a change and then actually breaks teams two, you know, deployment, and then everyone's kind of pointing the finger and things like that. So that definitely happens a lot in these larger environments we've worked in. Um, but either way, you know, like even just documenting something very simple, like, Hey, change the port from up to down. Like again, just monitoring it and and having that record is I think critical for if you start that practice, you know, early on in your career and you kind of stick to it, then it becomes, you know, kind of second nature and hopefully, you know, you get, get used to the process and just, you know, deal with it where I've met some engineers who refuse to do it. And then it comes back to vibe in the butt very, very carefully because if it's not in writing, then you can't protect yourself. And it's like, well, you know, you, you cowboyed it up and you're the one fixing it, right? So you got to be very careful about that. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things too, like if, if you're really working as a good team and you're, you know, having each other's back, um, when things go wrong, people like to blame other people. And uh, it's kind of like we all stabbed Caesar because we all approved the, the change management. So you can't fire us all. <laughs> yeah that, that's a good point yeah, it, it spreads the blame it, say it comes back to where like you know let's say you have a, a junior guy making a change and you as a senior guy or the approver if you don't catch the mistake up front then ultimately it kind of still falls back on you right so uh i've also seen people who just blindly accept whatever change you tell them like even though the change is totally wrong and it's going to cause problems but you know you're ultimately like you said that the team is responsible for the outcome right not just the individual yeah yeah so as far as the future of infrastructure management goes for networking, server, storage guys, even you collaboration guys. Watch it. <laughs> um, the, uh, so in the past, it's, it, ITIL has really been like the, the leading practice of, of infrastructure you know, engineers and managers of those engineers. Uh, as far as a practice of you know, approving a change designating a, you know, a specific change window that is, you know, outside of business hours and, and, you know, or if, if you're a 24 hour shop sort of in the, the lightest hours of the, of the week or something like that. But 
it would always end up being, you know, the time where 20 different changes would get poured into that one little window. And if something broke, it was, you know, sort of confusing, which, uh, you know, who actually broke the infrastructure if you, if you have a whole bunch of people making changes all at the same time, because it's, you know, a, a two or three hour window of the week. And we're sort of getting into this uh, mindset of DevOps where, you know, DevOps is sort of the idea that it, rather than having a development team working completely separate than your infrastructure team, you have a single team that um, that rolls out changes in a continuous delivery model where instead of making big changes in a small window, you're making lots of small changes all the time. And change management has really been you know, up until this point, more around the ITIL model where you're, you know, entering all of these different changes in and then during some certain window, either at the end of the day or at the end of the week, uh, you know, pushing all of these out. And now we're, you know, DevOps is really starting to take hold and, and we're getting into this continuous delivery model of of infrastructure changes. Mike, do you think do you think this continuous delivery model of of config changes on on infrastructure equipment is going to sort of change how uh, change management systems are used today? I think it will. Um, and I think if you look at the, the point of change management historically as it's existed, it's really to get documentation and agreement that something's ready to move into production, right? So when you look at how DevOps really is working in most uh, organizations today, the infrastructure or IT folks are becoming more, uh, and I don't want to say more like the developers, but they're operating more in the capacity that developers have operated in for a long time. And what I mean by that is that developers are moving to this model where they have tools to ensure that the code that they're writing does not produce adverse effects on the production application, right? That's how they're able to really deliver so many changes in a short period of time. So they write small code changes. Those code changes have unit tests attached to them always 100% of the time. And they have a very logged, um, you know, detailed output of what worked and when it was tested and where it was tested. And then when the change is pushed, it's easy to roll back because there's, you know, a clear delineation between what existed before and what existed after. If we look at how IT is operating in that DevOps model, we're starting to use things like configuration management again, which is key. It's just like the continuous delivery server for development environments like Jenkins or whatever you may be using, Bamboo, whatever. So it really takes the changes that you anticipate and those things are really small, you know, group additions to servers to start services up or start additional containers um, from images that already exist. And I have this URL or this image that I'm starting up a container for and I'm adding this server to this role or this group. And I have a very clear log of when that change occurred, what it was supposed to do and what occurred afterwards. So it's easy to roll back. So I operate in that same model where I use the tool to really implement the changes and what I'm trying to document with the change process, change management process was really this unknown deployment aspect of, I don't know what this person is doing while they're doing the change. So I have them write it down beforehand and then verify it afterwards that the change was completed successfully. And really the machine is doing that or the application or the tool is doing that for us now. So we have that clear line of visibility to what occurred both on the infrastructure side and on the software side. Um, when both of us are operating in a true DevOps model, Derek, what do you think? Do you think uh, do you think the DevOps model 
versus the ITIL model is going to uh, transform the way that change management is is actually used in a real environment? There's going to have to be definitely some form of evolution on that, right? Because like you know, like you guys are mentioning, the old model doesn't really transfer to how some teams are operating today. A good way to look at it too is you know, let's just kind of take the whole cloud, right? You know, let's say you move your workload in the cloud. Well, now you're up to your cloud provider's change management, right? And what's their process? Are they doing the DevOps, right? Or do they have monthly patch windows, things like that? So I think, you know, as you kind of change your partnerships and your providers, you might have to adjust how you handle internal IT processes as well. So it'll definitely be an interesting kind of ongoing evolution. I don't think there's really a right way or the wrong way today. As long as you do something, uh, I think it's better than nothing, right? So that's definitely key. And it also kind of ties back into documentation, which I know we've touched on on the show before. And, you know, all that ties back into just being a very important thing um, that you need to kind of get in the habit of doing every single time you make a change. Yeah. And if you look at, if you look at why public cloud exists, right, it's because the infrastructure wasn't moving at the same pace as the development environment was. So really to be able to deliver infrastructure services internally, as we have as an operation group, uh, historically in IT, we're going to have to move quicker. And that means that we can't slow down and wait for traditional change management processes to occur. So we have to put those tools in place to allow us to move at the speed of public cloud and the, ultimately the speed that developers are moving at um, to sort of meet the demand of the business. So I think th- there's no question it's going to change. Um, and you know, you hear not to use buzzwords, but it's, you know, people are talking about bimodal it and it's a, it's an evolution that's happening. And there's a delineation that's occurring between people who are managing legacy applications and following old paradigms around change management and application deployment and folks that are writing cloud native and containerized applications that can be deployed and, you know, and supported in this DevOps model. So it's already occurring to an extent. I, I think it's going to take a long time before we get fully on that model, but it's, it's moving that way already. Yeah, that's a good point about about you know the reason that we're moving to cloud, uh, you know whether it be private cloud or public cloud. OpenStack kind of exists, uh, and the automation tools around it, a lot of in a lot of ways exist to circumvent the the slowness of the of you know the ITIL change management model where you know DevOps or, or your I'm sorry your developers need some new VM stood up with these firewall rules that, you know attached to it and and you know allowing communication with their development environment and that kind of thing and and rather than putting in a you know a, a request to the change management system of okay please you know create this and and set these things and do this and waiting for the infrastructure team to do it you can you can hand them a self-service portal out of you know OpenStack or AWS or whatever platform you might be using and have all that automated on the back end where they just sort of you know build it themselves uh, it, you know, it's all scripting in the background that automates, you know, these firewall rules go in, the VMs get built, all of this stuff gets handed back down to them in an automated fashion that they can do reliably, you know, um, whenever they want and have it stood up quickly and not have to wait, you know, till the change management window at the end of the week to actually get their develop, you know, their small development VM built for some experiment that they're running or something like that. So that's a good point, Mike. I, I uh, hadn't thought of it that way. All right. So wrapping up, um, you know, sort of what we've learned here is, you know, change management. A lot of us as engineers, we don't like it. You know, Derek and I both sort of uh, vented about that. But it is something that is definitely is definitely needed in 
uh, in businesses these days, especially as much as businesses rely on their infrastructure, you know, and the configurations in that infrastructure to actually be operating on a, you know, and, and making money day to day. But um, I guess, you know, the main takeaway is if you're not using change management, it's definitely something you should look into, especially if you're not a very, a very small business um, that, you know, only has like one switch, one router or something like that. Um, there's quite a few open source change management tools out there and there's actually um, some good software as a service and, and, and pay, you know, paid tools and things like that. And uh, I'll include some of those in the links. But uh, Mike and Derek, what do you think? Should uh, should everybody you get the same uh, just as me? Everybody should be using change management. CYA. Yeah, do it. Yes. Yeah. We don't want any of our <laughs> listeners to get fired. So if we if we even uh, encouraged one person to go start using change management, I think we've done our jobs and we've, we've made this podcast worthwhile. All right. So let's uh, let's wrap up the show. Let's go around the table. And uh, what are you guys doing for the week? And how can people find you on the Internet? Derek, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, I think this week I got a couple designs working on for a couple customers. Wrapping up a presentation I'm giving at the end of the month in San Diego on some uh, next-gen SD-WAN. Um, probably going to try to get a blog in somewhere on Packet Pushers and you know, kind of just following around on Twitter. So you can find me over there around Packet Pushers. Mike, how about you? So this week I'm actually spending some time in the field uh, working with some customers on some video designs and uh, some general UC upgrades and regular non-exciting dial tone stuff. But um, I always like spending time with customers, so excited about that this week. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, probably complaining most of the time, uh, at my last name, A-O-S-S-E-Y. So seek me out. Tell me that life's going to continue on. You use any excuse you can to get back in the field, huh, Mike? I I do. I love it. It's it's like I I don't like sitting behind a desk all day, so I need to be out and about. (laughs) And... uh... I'll be spending this week working on actually uh, working on some automation tools with uh, trying to get Ansible set up for rolling out configs to a customer. So that's a lot of fun. I'm hoping to put a podcast together or a uh, a blog post together if I can get that all working properly. So I'll be doing that uh, most of the week. And if uh, if you want to follow me or or uh, see my tweets or or my blog posts, you can find most of my blogs at uh, at Packet Pushers. And you can see me on Twitter at Packetsar. And uh, Mike and Derek, thank you guys very much for your time. Everybody have a good week. Sweet. Hey, I finally actually... Um, I, I, <clears throat> on Friday, I got Ansible working. And actually, uh, I was able to finally like write all of the YAML code to to get it to like self-reference the way I want it to push out like you know pull values and and put them in a a Jinja two template and spit them out the way I want to. Now I just need to try and get in and write some modules to like output it you know raw and that kind of stuff. But it's a pretty cool little tool. It it's is a pain in the butt to get working. It, yeah, once That's you get cool, it working, man. it's it's like really sweet, but uh, it does suck at first. Yeah, it's just oh man. I, YAML just sucks. I hate I hate the YAML yeah. temp like the format just is horrible. I wish they would use anything else. I mean, I'll write it in raw <laughs> Python if I have to, but but and and it's essentially YAML just being you know pulled in as dictionaries and lists, right? Yep. So it just seems like it would be easier to write it as like a and, and it's getting pulled into Python namespaces anyway. So it seems like it would be easier to write it as raw Python rather than YAML um, templates. But whatever, it's. Um, uh- 
I really believe that someone developed that standard just so that networking people wouldn't go, oh, I can't write Python. I can never do that. So, like, <laughs> I have this config file that's basically, like, this ridiculous, like, white space-driven standard oh, of how so I put wild. information into a file. Like, you could have just gone with I and I or any other thing yes. out there, right? Like, Gosh. 